word. Genesis chapter 21, beginning in verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know. Who has done this thing? You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba. Because there, both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Now flip over to chapter 23. We're going to read a little bit more about a little bit more land. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It's at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you this field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants." So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray to the Lord. Lord, this is your word as we confess. And I pray as we look at these unusual real estate transactions that we would better understand what you're doing here and why you have preserved these two sections of Scripture for us to read today. Lord, I pray that your faithfulness would be lifted up in our hearts, that your goodness, your faithfulness to your promises would be seen by us clearly 
and our faith would increase. And may Christ be glorified as we study your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, way back at our, the beginning of our study of Abraham, back in Genesis chapter 12, when the Lord first called Abraham, the call to go into the land accompanied God's promises. And those promises to Abraham could be summarized by essentially three words, seed, blessing, and land. Seed, blessing, and land. The seed promise, the offspring promise, goes way back even further, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. So we're doing a little review here uh, for, for those of you who have not been with us, and for those of you, of you who have been with us, we need some refreshing here because of we've got to get the context of these, these passages. So that seed promise of the seed, blessing, and land, the seed promise goes back to Genesis 3. When the Lord promised that the seed of the woman, the offspring, would come through the woman, and that seed, that offspring, would crush the serpent. And we later learned that was to include the serpent's works as well. So we've been anticipating, as we've been studying Genesis, we've been anticipating that offspring since Genesis 3. And God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that this offspring would come through his family. And so, as we've studied Abraham, we've seen that God is beginning the fulfillment of that promise, particularly with the child Isaac, born as a miracle baby to the old Sarah and old Abraham. So we've seen the promise of the seed beginning to come to fruition. The promises of the blessings, we've also seen God has blessed Abraham materially, even when Abraham acted the fool and tried to pine off pawn off his wife as his sister twice, Abraham profited from those interactions through his scheming. Others have also been blessed through Abraham's prayers. The nations have been blessed through Abraham's prayers and through the strength of his little army. And still, while that promise has begun to be fulfilled, a greater blessing to the nations awaits the arrival of the true seed. But God also promised Abraham land. I told you, seed, blessing, and land. He also promised Abraham land. At first, that promise way back in Genesis 12 was only to Abraham's descendants. The Lord said to Abraham, to your offspring, I will give this land. Speaking of the land of of Canaan, but in chapter 13, if you'll remember, the Lord added to that. He said, I will give it to you and your offspring. Well, up to this point, through our 10 chapters of study in Genesis, no land has been granted to Abraham. We are still waiting to see the beginning of this fulfillment. And here is why this is important. This, this, is, this is why this is important. In the big picture of Genesis, it's not just Abraham's story, but in the big picture of Genesis, what has taken place? Well, there, after the fall, there was the promise of difficulty in childbirth as a result of the fall. After the fall, there was a promise or curse of difficulty in work as a result of the fall and a loss of the land of Eden and the presence of God with humanity, exile, to use the biblical phrase. The promises to Abraham are ultimately meant to be a reversal of all of that bad stuff that happened after the fall. The the promises to Abraham hinted at a restoration, a reconciliation with God that was to come. And the way that God had promised that restoration involved a seed, the seed, the blessing, and the land. A serpent-crushing child is promised where there had been difficulty in bearing children. Blessing that opposes the curse is promised. A land of bounty is promised. And a return to the land of God's presence is promised. So what God promised Abraham, we need to kind of be seeing the big biblical story of redemption here. What God had promised Abraham in the long run will be an undoing of the destruction that the serpent and sin has brought into the world. So it's important then that we be looking to see how these promises 
are fulfilled, even in Abraham's lifetime, because God promised Abraham in your lifetime, some of this would, would begin to be fulfilled. These promises are relevant to us because these promises relate to God's plan of redemption. The promises to Abraham, even the land promise, matters to you. And we'll see that as we look closer at these two sections of Scripture today. So let's first look then at this dealing with Abimelech at the end of chapter 21. What is happening here? Well, Abraham, if you'll recall, is still a sojourner in the land. He doesn't own any property. He's got his his flocks, he's got his family, he's got his servants, he's got his wealth, but he doesn't have the one thing that lasts, right? He doesn't have any, any land. And so wherever Abraham goes, he has to trust in the good graces of the ruler of the land to allow him to, to live there and to graze his flocks and to, to get water and so forth. But Abraham has more than that. He has more than his wealth. He has more than the good graces of of the rulers. He has, going back to chapter 12 again, he has assurance from God. That his assurance, this this special promise that is given only to Abraham and and his kids, if the ruler of of the land treats him well, that ruler is blessed. And if the ruler treats him poorly, then the ruler is cursed. And this is an unconditional promise from God. So even if, if Abraham is dishonest and crooked and lousy in his dealing with the ruler, God still holds up his end of the promise. We saw that in Egypt, and we saw that with Abimelech in chapter 20. Abimelech found this out the hard way, didn't he? He found out about God's favor with Abraham even when Abraham was unrighteous. So look at verse 22. Abimelech is is coming to, uh, to Abraham, and he brings with him his army general. That, that, the, the mention there of Phicol, the commander of the army, that is not irrelevant. That, that, is, that is to give us a kind of a, a, a picture in our minds of the scene. So they show up at Abraham's camp to offer a sort of peace treaty. And that commander there is, 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 is insurance for Abimelech. He doesn't know exactly what's going to happen with Abraham. He knows Abraham is, uh, he knows at the very least that Abraham's God is with him. He says that there. He knows that Abraham's God will protect him no matter what. And so if things go sideways in this negotiation, Abimelech has got some backup that he's, he's brought with him. And look, look what Abimelech says to him in verse 22. God is with you in all that you do. That's his opening Savoy to Abraham in, this, in these peace talks, in this diplomacy. Look, I know who you are. God is with you no matter what you do. In other words, for some reason, your God is with you whether you are acting righteously or unrighteously, whether you are deceptive or whether you are truthful. And Abimelech's figured this out. And so he says in verse 23, Therefore, I want, I want, I want assurance from you, Abraham. Swear by God that you will not deal falsely with me and my people. You see what he's saying? He's saying, I, I don't trust you uh, for good reason. And I know that no matter what happens, it's going to go well for you. So I just want assurance from you that you're going to be honest with me. And Abraham says, I could do that. I swear to that. And I think at this point in the story, Abraham realizes something. This is sort of an aha moment in negotiations. He, he realizes he has the upper hand in his dealings with Abimelech. Abimelech is actually afraid of him. Do you get that sense? As you're reading this, after all, God has brought a curse to Abimelech's household in chapter 20. He's come to Abraham with the threat of an army just to ensure that this conversation is peaceful. He doesn't need to do that unless he fears Abraham. But but more importantly than, than that realization, at the beginning of chapter 21, something happened that we've been waiting for for a long time, and that Abraham has been waiting for longer than you and I. God fulfilled his promise to Abraham to send this baby, Isaac. So Abraham's confidence in the Lord's promises, his faith in God's word, is really strong right here in the second part of chapter 21. That promise of the baby has just been fulfilled. And this realization that Abimelech is afraid of Abraham 
and the Lord, and, and that the Lord is on Abraham's side, no matter what, I think that gives Abraham this confidence that he's not had before. God fulfilled for Abraham the most difficult of his promises. And, and what's happened here is this has taken Abraham's confidence off of himself, and now it's on God. And so with this confidence in the Lord, Abraham freely lays into Abimelech. Look at verse 25. The word says, Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. Now that word that we translate in our Bibles, reproved, has a really heavy negative sense to it. It can also mean rebuke to your face. Abraham is not afraid here, is he? To tell the king of the land, with the king's general there, what's what? And he's letting him have it. Your people took the well that I dug away from me. Now, old Abraham, passive Abraham, the Abraham that we've gotten to know before chapter 21, would not have done this. Old Abraham, for fear of man... Remember how afraid he is. For fear of man, he tried to pawn off his wife as his sister, trusting in his own ability to scheme and to get what he wants through lying and trickery. But new Abraham, the Abraham who has seen and has experienced the faithfulness of God, this new Abraham is confident in the Lord. And look at Abimelech's response. And you can see the, the power dynamic here. Uh, Abraham is clearly in this interaction the more powerful, and Abimelech is the subservient one. Look what he says. I had no idea. This, this is a shock to me. Why didn't, why didn't you tell me about this? It reminded me as I was reading it of, of Back to the Future, the, the first one, the beginning of the movie, old Abraham, George McFly, is, is subservient to Biff. Right? He, Biff pushes him around. Hits him over the head. He, he bosses him around. But at the end of the movie, after George has this newfound confidence, Biff is, is he makes sure that Biff adds another coat of, of wax to the car, right? So yes, yes, Mr. McFly, whatever you need, Mr. McFly. That's that attitude of servitude that, that Biff has at the end. And I think that's the sense here that I get with Abimelech. He is, he is Biff. He's afraid of, um, of Abraham. But before we get to the point of what's happening here, the land point here, I do want you to, 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 to notice just a point of application regarding Abraham's confidence. Abraham has just realized something, this, oh. He has just realized that because God is with him, no one can stand against him. It has taken him many chapters to come to this conclusion, decades to come to this conclusion. And yet here we are. His confidence in the Lord's protection and in the Lord's promises frees him to make a complaint against injustice. As, as we'll see in Jacob's story later on, Abraham could just as easily dig another well here. Right? It's just a well. He could dig another well, but he doesn't. Rather than trusting in his own strength and his own abilities, he's going to lean on God's promises here. He's going to lean on God's protection of him. So he, he takes the, the risk, even in the face of a powerful king and that king's army general, to confront and rebuke that king. And what I want us to see here, brothers and sisters in Christ especially, is you can have this same confidence. I'm not saying necessarily that you should complain when your neighbor encroaches on your property. That's, that's not the point here. You don't have the land promise that Abraham dad did, all right? That, that land is, is, belongs to the world, but you just live there right now. So I'm not saying that you should complain necessarily when your neighbor encroaches on your property or when your buddy doesn't pay you the gas money that, that you think he owes you. This, this is bigger than that. Abraham's confidence was in the Lord and his promises. 
his promises of blessing and land and a child. And the Lord has fulfilled already the most difficult of those promises. He's brought a child to a 100-year-old man and his 90-year-old wife. And he's defended Abraham again and again and again. And Abraham sees that he now has reason to be confident in the Lord. And he can be bold in the face of opposition. Now, here's how that connects to you. The promise of that child has come to its fullness in Jesus Christ. God promised, fulfilled his promise to Abraham by not sparing his own son for you. And so not only has the, the promise of the child been fulfilled, but the promise of the blessing to the nations that he promised in chapter 12, that has also been fulfilled. You have, because of the Christ, you have the blessing of acceptance before God. You also have the blessing of the Holy Spirit given to you, which tells us, as Paul says, God is for you. The Spirit of God dwells in you. And so Paul, thinking of these same things, asks this important question in Romans chapter 8 that relates to our passage. What do you have to be afraid of? Abraham realized he didn't have to be afraid of Abimelech. He didn't have to lie and scheme. He could be upfront with him. What do you have to be afraid of? You have Christ. God has given you his only son. What do you have to be afraid of? Should we fear telling our neighbors about Jesus because what they might think about us? No, God is with you. He is for you. Should we fear standing boldly for God's design for marriage and biblical sexuality and biblical justice? No, we should not fear that. God is for us. Even when we are maligned because of what we believe, our confidence is in Christ and his promises. God is for us. Should we fear when we watch the news and it seems like the foundations of our country are crumbling beneath us? Because they are. No, we shouldn't fear because God is for us. Should we fear Satan's attacks on our church, whether through slander or divisiveness or whatever may come? No, God is for us. And he has given us the means to boldly respond. When we stand boldly on God's promises, we can have a confidence greater than Abraham's as he rebukes the king of the land and his general. That's the big picture growth that we've seen in Abraham's faith, isn't it? And we can learn from that. And so I think while our author is showing us that sanctification that is taking place in Abraham's life. That's a part of the story. But the driving point here is really about this well. Abraham says, I dug the well, and he wants to make sure that he has access to the well that he dug. And he's even willing to back up his claim with these seven ewe lambs. We see this in verse 30. And what's happening here is he's telling Abimelech, if you receive this gift from me, you are agreeing with my version of the story. If Abimelech receives the lambs, he's agreeing to Abraham's claim. If he rejects the lambs, he's rejecting Abraham's claim. Of course, Abimelech receives the lambs, and so now, effectively, Abraham owns the well. It's his now. He possesses for himself and for his offspring the first tiny little bit of the promised land. Water. So after God has proved himself faithful to fulfill the promise of the child, he also fulfills his promise to give Abraham a place in the promised land. And it all begins with a well. God is faithful to his word. The name of the well, as we see in verse 31, uh, is Beersheba, which either means, we're not really sure uh, with the translation, it either means place of the oath, because Abraham and Abimelech swore an oath to one another there, or it means place of the seven, because of the seven lambs. The, there's just a little bit of a vowel difference between those two words. And uh, either way, though, this place will forever be known to us because of the name Beersheba. We know from the rest of Scripture, this is the southern border of the promised land. The northern border we saw back in chapter 13. In chapter 13, Abraham's little army chased the four wicked kings as far as a place called Dan in the north. 
God was faithful to protect Abraham all the way north to Dan. And he's been faithful to protect him and provide for him all the way south to a place called, which is now called Beersheba. So for the rest of the Bible, the promised land, whenever you're reading the scriptures, will be described as that land from Dan to Beersheba. And that all starts here with Abraham's story. Well, in response to securing this well, Abraham worships the Lord. We see this in verse 39. And look at the way that he worships. He plants a tree. This is not to say that Abraham is taking on the idolatry of the locals uh, and worshiping the tree. No, this, this tree is a tamarisk tree. This is an evergreen tree of the region. Uh, and, and it's an evergreen tree because it's a commemoration of the place where God proved himself to always, forever, be faithful. And he worships the Lord with a name that we have not seen yet. He calls him uh, the Lord, the everlasting God, which is El Olam, which means the ancient of these days. He's the everlasting God. So you have an evergreen tree worshiping the everlasting, or Abraham planting an evergreen tree, worshiping the everlasting God. And this, this worship, what we're seeing here, is pointing forward to God's promise. It's as if Abraham is saying through this act of worship here, this tree that I'm planting will outlast me. But even more, God, the everlasting God, will outlast me. God's promises will outlast me. This well that I have secured will one day belong to my offspring. God will always, forever, be faithful. That's what he's, it's this word of praise here, calling on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. This worship is pointing forward to God's promise. And that's the end of chapter 21. All right, Abraham gets a well. All right, so chapter 23. <laughs> the, the land promises to Abraham uh, are, are ever so slightly, itsy-bitsy slightly, are coming to a little bit more and more fruition. And it gets better in chapter 23. We're going to see Abraham's real estate empire grow a little bit more. And it all begins in chapter 23, if you'll flip over there, with something that happens one time in all of Scripture. The age of a woman at her death is given. The rest of the Bible is careful to follow that rule about not talking about a woman's age. But, but here, here it's too important to overlook. Sarah Sarah is, is God's chosen vessel to bring about the seed of the promise. And what Moses wants to show us here, uh, the writer, the author, he wants to show us Sarah lived all the way to 127 years, which is to say she was blessed by God. She lived to an old, old age. She didn't just have baby uh, Isaac and then die the next day. No, the Lord was truly with her. He was truly blessing her with, with life. A lot, of, a lot of times we talk exclusively about Abraham, the patriarch, being the blessed one, the, the friend of God. But Moses is intent here to point out Sarah's role is just as important. She is the chosen vessel to, to bring about the promised child. Well, as important as Sarah is, we only get two verses about her death, and then uh, Abraham's weeping and mourning. And then for the next 18 verses of chapter 23, we read about this negotiation for a grave. So, so the emphasis on chapter, of chapter 23, as important as Sarah is, the emphasis is not on her death, but on the grave. The point of chapter 23 is seen in how important it is to Abraham to own the piece of land that his family will be buried in, to which we go, why? What is going on? Why is this gravesite so important to Abraham? Why not just bury Sarah in a random field somewhere? These guys offered her land to, to just bury her. Why didn't he just take that? Or he could have burned her on a, on a, a pyre or, or leave her out to be eaten by the birds. Additionally, the, another question that we have is Moses could have just well said, he could have told us, Moses, our author, could have said, Sarah died. And then say nothing about her burial. 
right? How many biographies have you read where the place of burial is mentioned at all? Moses even breaks his own convention here because the death of Adam has no mention of a resting place. The deaths of all of those descendants of Seth in chapter 5, do you remember that? And he died and he died and he died. No mention of burials. Neither does Noah's death. Noah. Noah's really important. Where was he buried? No idea. Or Abraham's father. Abraham's father. Isn't it interesting that we know where Sarah was buried, but none of those other people. There's something about Sarah's death and her relationship to Abraham and the promise of the land that makes this episode so important. And I'm going to tell you up front what I believe is happening. Sometimes when I preach, I wait to give you the punchline at the end. Dustin has told me, stop doing that. So I'm going to tell you up front what I believe is happening here. I believe that what we're seeing is an act of faith. Abraham trusts in God's promise of the land. We saw that with the well in Beersheba. He trusts, it's important to him to get a little bit of the land because God said he would have it. But this deal goes a little further. Abraham believes there is a resurrection to come. The dead will be raised. So if there is a resurrection to come, if the dead will be raised, if Sarah is going to be raised up, then Abraham wants to be sure that Sarah is raised up in the promised land. Owning a burial plot in the land of promise and burying Sarah there is a display of Abraham's faith in the promise. And that's what I want to show you. Here's how we get there. First off, we always need to read Genesis through the lens of the rest of the Bible. The Bible interprets the Bible, and the prophets and the apostles are our infallible commentaries on the Scriptures. And here's what the writer of Hebrews says about Abraham. And you'll, you'll recognize these passages because we've referred to them a few, a few times. There are two things that the writer to the Hebrews points out about Abraham. In, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, he says... For Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. All right, well, what does that mean? What that means is that Abraham knew he was trusting, he was hoping that the land that God promised him would be more than a place to grace his sheep. It was a land that would include a city, the heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem whose designer and builder is God. He was looking forward to the new Eden where God dwells with his people. That's the first thing that we learn about Abraham's faith. Secondly, Hebrews eleven nineteen says, and he considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. Do you remember in chapter 22 when we examined that? So Abraham believes in God's power over death and in a coming age when the dead will be raised. And so what I'm doing is reading both of those truths back into Genesis 23 to help us understand why exactly this burial ground is so important. But that backwards reading isn't the only evidence that I've got, okay? It's, the only, it's not the only thing that we look at to understand Abraham. We can also move forward from Abraham's life onward. So let's look a little closer for a moment. In verses 1 and 2, Sarah dies, Abraham mourns for her, and verses, verse 2 says this took place at Kiriath Arba, or what will later become known as Hebron. Now, this place so far has gotten three names, the Oaks of Mamre, Kiriath Arba, which is a name that it will receive later on in Joshua, and then even later it will became, become known as a place called Hebron. This is the place... Just to give us a, a geographical awareness here, this is the place where Abraham met with the Lord at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 12, before his rescue mission to recapture Lot from those four evil kings of the east. This was the place, this is the place where Abraham was standing when God said, I will give you this land, or I will give this land to your descendants. And so with that word from God, this became Abraham's preferred home base. Right? He doesn't own any land there, but he's a sojourner, but it's, it's where he prefers to pitch his tent. The Oaks of Mamre are here in this place, and this is where also, if you remember later on, where the Lord came to eat a meal with Abraham. 
And where Sarah heard of of the child that would come from her as she was sitting in the tent and listening to the angel outside. And from here on, this will continue to be an important piece of land, not a very big region, but a very small piece of land, an important place for God's people. Beyond this burial ground, Isaac and Rebekah, they will make this their home base. Jacob, later on, a couple generations later, he will live here with his wives and his sons before the whole family goes to Egypt. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Leah will all be buried here. Jacob's burial, if you, if you go to the end of Genesis, you'll see that it's important because he requested that he be taken from Egypt to be taken back here to this place to be buried. Joseph also. Joseph later died in Egypt, and he asked before he died, that that his bones be taken back to this place too. And so when the Israelites fled Egypt in the Exodus more than 400 years later, they carried Joseph's bones back to this place. Speaking of the Exodus, Hebron is the place where Caleb and the Hebrew spies will go to survey the land. And it is from this place that they will see the fertile wealth of the land, the pomegranates, the figs, and the, the giant grape clusters that they have to carry on two poles. After the conquest of this land, in the book of Joshua, this specific plot of land will be assigned to Caleb because he was the faithful Israelite from the tribe of Judah who trusted in the Lord's promises, the same way that Abraham trusts in the Lord's promises. Now, if we fast forward from Joshua all the way to the book of Samuel, during David's life, You've heard of David? We sang all of these people we sang about in the, in the, in the song a few minutes ago. Uh, David will move to Hebron and set up here as his home base. This is where David will be anointed king. This will be where David is crowned king. And from here, he will rule over all of the tribes of Israel for seven years. Right here. This land that Abraham is negotiating for. That seven-year rule of David over all of Israel from this land will then shift to Jerusalem, which kind of transitions to a new phase in Scripture. But all throughout the Old Testament, beginning with Abraham, there's this close connection between those who are hoping in the Lord's promises, especially the promise of the Lord giving them the land, and this location, Hebron. And this land reaches its climax of importance in the Old Covenant when the kingdom of God under David the Anointed is established from here. All of that begins in chapter 23 with the purchase of this graveyard. All of that that you're going to see in the Scriptures is the progress in this world of God's promises to Abraham. And Abraham here in chapter 23, is trusting that all of that will come to fruition. And so it's worth negotiating 400 shekels of silver, which is $3,500, for this plot of land. And it's worth it to Moses, the writer, to spend the ink and the papyrus paper on it as he writes it. So let's take a moment and examine how this purchase for this burial plot comes about. Uh, we're not going to go verse by verse. We'll go section by section. In verses 3 through 10, we see Abraham going to the elders at the city gates, and he's asking for a burial place. All of them there, and you can see that in the way that it's written, all of them recognize Abraham is something of a man. He, they see Abraham's stature, his power, his authority. They call him a prince of God. A mighty man of God is the word that they use. No doubt, they are looking back on the last 50 years of history. And they're remembering Abraham's battles against the kings of the east and how he ran them out of the land. And then they're seeing how God has blessed Abraham with all of these flocks and this material wealth. And they're seeing this. Oh, I guess Isaac probably 30 by this point. But they're seeing this child given to Abraham at an old age. And they're all pleased to have a man of this stature in their land, and so they're gracious to him. Bury your wife anywhere you want. You can have any of our graveyards to bury your wife. And that's the sentiment that you get here. And then Abraham, who knows what he wants, 
Right? You could see from, from the beginning of this negotiation to the, to the end, Abraham knows the plot of land that he's after. I want Ephron's cave. So he singles out Ephron because Ephron has that field with all the trees and the cave. And you get the sense that he knows how to do this negotiation, right? He knows how to play their game and he does it strategically. And then in verse 10 through 16, we read about the negotiation. Ephron says, you can have the land. Abraham insists, I want to purchase it cleanly. Ephron then does what he's supposed to do in a really gentle way. He's like, you can have the land, but you know, if you were going to buy it, it's 400 shekels. Abraham agrees to that with no haggling. Like he doesn't, doesn't try to bring the price down. He says, okay, that's fair. That's a good price. Everyone witnessed. This is a good price. And the, off, the author here is careful to show how many people are seeing this. All the people of the land, all the elders were there at the gates. And then in verses 13 to 16, Moses says this took place again in the hearing of all the people of the land and the Hittites. And the measurements of the shekel, so we've agreed on a price, now how are we going to weigh it out? Now they didn't have coinage, they didn't, a quarter wasn't a quarter, it was a weight. So a shekel was a particular weight, I think 0.6 grams uh, is what we're guessing now, but they would have had their own weights as the Hittites. Abraham says, we'll use your weighers, your scales, and we'll weigh it according to your scales. And, um, and so the measurements are according to them. The payment is according to them. And we get all these details about a purchase. Why? Because Moses, inspired by the Spirit, wants to make absolutely sure that everyone knows this land, this purchase was completed fully, and it was completed fairly with multiple witnesses. There's nothing underhanded about this. No sketchy Abraham conniving happened here. Abraham didn't lowball Ephron. He gave him the asking price, he waited out in front of everyone, and he paid Ephron in front of everyone. And that's the conclusive statement that you get in verses 17 and 18. So this land with the field and the trees and the cave that previously belonged to Ephron now belongs to Abraham. It was deeded to Abraham, and it was his. And it was his. And, and out, however many ways Moses says it here, we get it very clear to us, Abraham got this land. And then verse 19 says, and Abraham buried Sarah there. And then verse 20, again, because this was Abraham's land. <laughs> Formerly Hittite land, formerly Canaanite land, now it's Abraham's. This purchase, as I said, was an act of faith all to Abraham's part because burial is an act of faith. It is a testimony to everyone watching that Abraham is hoping in God's promises. From here on out, after this first burial in all of the scriptures, burial will become the norm for all who are hoping in God's promises. And this is not to say, this is not because God cannot or will not restore other ways of, of end-of-life practices. It's, it's not that God can't restore cremation ashes in the, rest, in the, in the resurrection. It, this is not a matter of what God can do or what he can't do or what he will do or won't do. God is faithful to his promises to raise those in Christ regardless of whether they're cremated or laid to rest in the ocean, or left on the battlefield, or turned on into compost. So, so don't, this is not a critique of any of those other means of, of, of um, saying goodbye to our dead. It's not a critique of those. The vast majority of, of, of funerals that we go to nowadays come after the cremation of the deceased. If for no other reason then because there's price gouging happening in the burial world, right? That the, I think it's uneth unethical um, what, what's happening surrounding burial plots and coffins and all that accompanies that in our region. And there's laws that say you can't bury people on your own property. Churches don't, we, don't, we have a parking lot instead of a, a graveyard. Um, it's just not something that we do anymore as, as, as Christians. Death has become more commercialized. Our decisions then surrounding death become just matters of what makes sense for the family, financial decisions and, and pragmatic decisions rather than what we used to have the freedom to do in thinking about burial. So this is not a, a criticism of cremation, but this is an elevation 
and a reminder of the historic Christian practice of burial that goes all the way back to Abraham here in chapter 23. The, the importance of burial is more a matter of what we are communicating through our actions even after death than it is a matter of what God is able to do. Okay, so it's just something to, to think about. Um, this is, I've never, I was telling Josh this morning, I've never had this conversation with anyone. No one's ever asked me, should I bury or cremate? And he said, well, you've never preached about it. I was like, you're right. I have this, this, never preached Genesis chapter 23 before. So this is one of those things that doesn't come up very much in conversation as Christians, uh, but something when it does come up in the text, it's worth considering. I would compare it to how we talk and think about baptism in a way, right? As Baptists, we believe that baptism involves immersion in the water. First of all, because that's what baptizo, the Greek word, means. It means to go under. But second of all, because of what immersion communicates, what we're showing when we do that. When we're baptized, we go under the water. We're visually buried, right? And then, and then we're raised up. And that is a symbol of our gospel hope, our union with Christ, and our union with his burial and his resurrection that communicates something different than sprinkling or pouring or smearing, doesn't it? Likewise, think about a wedding ceremony. When we think about weddings, a wedding in front of the body of Christ, in front of the church body, communicates something, doesn't it? It says that this Christian couple is being married before God and these witnesses, these brothers and sisters in Christ. A marriage at the courthouse is still a marriage. It still shows the value of marriage. It still counts. But there, there's, a, there's a gravitas to a ceremony in the presence of the body of Christ. See what I'm getting at? Burial is similar. We see the body. We watch the body go underground. We know that that's where that body lays. They're in the ground waiting for Christ's return and the resurrection of the dead. And in the entire funeral service, and this is what I love about Christian funeral services, whether it's cremation or burial, the entire funeral service involves a proclamation of resurrection hope, doesn't it? That's what it's all about. We read scriptures about the resurrection. We, 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 we find out that our mourning is to be a, a hopeful mourning from the scriptures, which is why I think we experienced it last week with, with Eldon's funeral. It was a worship service. It was a worship service. The gospel is proclaimed. Christ is glorified. Testimonies are given that glorify Christ. And so I would encourage you, members of Del Cerro, whenever we have a funeral here, even if you didn't know the person well, gather together with the church and be reminded of the resurrection hope that we have. This is, this is our testimony to the world. When you ask someone, what is Christianity about? What is the Christian hope? What is it? The resurrection. And so this is out of all of the things that we do as, as Christians that aren't Sunday morning, that's a really important one. We testify to the watching world of what we're doing, uh, which is what I think Abraham's doing here. Abraham could have buried Sarah in Ephron's cave without purchasing it. He could have let her dry out. He could have carried her bones back to her hometown in Chaldea with her cousins and everything. He could have gone through any number of respectful end-of-life practices, but Abraham chose burial in a plot of land he purchased. The land of which God said way back in chapter 12, this is the land I'm giving to your offspring. And Abraham showed his faith in God's promises by purchasing that land and burying Sarah there because he was hoping in the future resurrection, hoping in the culmination of God's promises to bring restoration. And so here we are, very, very near the end of Abraham's story. We're, we're really close. Right? Next week, we'll look at uh, Isaac's marriage, and then we'll see Abraham's death. So we are this close. And it would seem to us that Abraham has seen the fulfillment of all of God's promises, right? Land, seed, and blessing. But he hasn't. He has seen the partial fulfillment of God's promises. Hebrews says that Abraham died in faith, not having received the things promised, 
but greeted them from afar. They had begun to be received. The land, the seed, and the blessing had begun to be received in his lifetime. He greeted those things, but he had not received them in their fullness. He knew that this land for a funeral plot was not the land. Abraham knew that Isaac was not the offspring. And Abraham knew that though he had been blessed abundantly, it was not the blessing. He lived like we do, in the same hoping space that we do, what we call the already and the not yet. We have more of the already. But already Abraham is seeing the down payment of God's promises, the child, the blessing, the land, but all of those are only in their partial form. Likewise, you and me, we know already the fulfillment of the promise of the offspring, the Christ has come to us. We have Jesus. We know the fulfillment of the promise of the blessing because the Christ died, he was risen, he ascended to heaven, and he poured out his spirit upon us. The spirit, the blessing to the nations. To you and me, we have the spirit. But we have not seen God's promise of the restoration of the earth. When Christ rules over the land, the new creation, that day is yet to come. When Christ returns and he defeats death once for all and the earthly powers are destroyed and the new creation kingdom is established once for all. We're waiting for that. But until that day, we wait in the already and the not yet. We live on this earth as pilgrims like Abraham living and expressing our hope through our worship. He worshiped. Through our lives lived in obedience to Christ. Uh, we, we, will, we will learn very soon that Abraham lived in obedience to God. We, we, we live now through our baptisms, which are just little glimpses of, of, what have to come, of what is to come. Our communion, little glimpses of what is to come. And even our proclamation even comes through our deaths. Our deaths. 